Welcome to today's reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger for February 21st. I'm your reader, Nicole Tam. We have a few headlines on today's paper, starting with a blue ribbon fair, the Webster County Fair honored for outstanding community and youth service. Another headline there, one injured after vehicle hits train, driver not identified Monday. There's two more headlines, including GOP to correct, quote, drafting error in pipeline bill. The legislation have exempt two pipelines from new restrictions. And finally, the fourth headline in the front page of the newspaper, former paraeducator pleads guilty to lascivious conduct. Sentencing for that person is set for April 17th. Let's get started with one injured after vehicle hits trained. This is written by Kelby Wingert of the Fort Dodge Messenger. A driver of a pickup truck was transported to the hospital with possible internal injuries following a collision with a Union Pacific Railroad train on Monday morning. The accident happened around 8.30 in the morning in the 2100 block of Mill Road near Georgia Pacific south of Fort Dodge. According to Webster County Sheriff's Deputy Pat Gerhardt, the driver of the truck failed to stop at the railroad crossing and struck the train as it passed by. There were no other passengers in the vehicle, he said. The driver of that truck was taken to Unity, Unity Point Health, Trinity Regional Medical Center by the Fort Dodge Fire Department with possible internal injuries, Gerhard said. The driver was cited for failure to properly stop at a railroad crossing, he said. The driver was not identified on Monday. Also assisting on scene were the Iowa State Patrol, the Iowa Department of Transportation, and the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. There is an image of that collided vehicle with the train here that was sent in by uh, a witness that was in that area. There is also a caption that says, One person was injured Monday morning after failing to stop at a railroad crossing and striking a moving train south of Fort Dodge. Let's now turn to uh, this cute little story about the Blue Ribbon Fair, uh, about Webster County Fair honored for outstanding community and youth service. Right next to the headline, there is a really cute photo of two kids with a fire hydrant uh, in firefighting outfits. Uh, So it turns out it's a six-year-old and an eight-year-old of Duncombe. They use teamwork to move a fire extinguisher into place during the firefighter show at the Webster County Fair during July 14th of last year. So let's get started on this story. The Webster County Fair has been named a 2022 Blue Ribbon Fair by the Association of Iowa Fairs. The award is given to only six Iowa Fairs each year, with Webster County representing the association's North Central District. Each award winner is chosen for its distinguished service to area youth and to the community, both during the fair and in interim events. This award is exciting and an honor, said Heather Stewart. She is the Webster County Fair Manager. We have made big leaps with the improvements on the fairgrounds and with all the events and happenings during Fair Week. We have worked hard to bring a fun five-day sport of entertainment to the fair every year. According to Tom Barnes, Executive Director of the Association of Iowa Fairs, the Webster County Fair was chosen for its service to the community and area youth, as well as the outstanding caliber of volunteers who are involved with the fair, including the Webster County 4-H. Sorry, let me move to the continuation of the story. Um, Volunteers involved with the fair, including the Webster County 4-H program and area FFA chapters. My wife Sue and I have visited the Webster County Fair several times over the past years, and we found that it does indeed serve very well the community as outlined in the guidelines of this award, Barnes said. 
The award is a dream come true, following years of hard work and improvements made by the fair board. Stewart says that when I came onto the board about five years ago, I learned about the Blue Ribbon Fair Award. I told the board that that's going to be us someday. We will get that award. We have worked our tails off to show all the improvement at the fairgrounds. In 2020, we did the big grandstand move to make room for parking. I worked with some of the sheep guys to get the concrete in the sheep and goat barn, and now we're working on the facelift of the indoor arena. In recent years, the Webster County Fair Board has also brought in a carnival, live entertainment, and food vendors during Fair Week, in addition to the annual 4-H and FFA livestock and static shows. Barnes says that we would like to thank the Webster County 4-H program, area FFA chapters, and all of the many other area volunteers that are involved with the fair. They are all combined to make the Webster County Fair a quote blue ribbon fair. The award was presented to the Webster County Fair Board during the Association of Iowa Fairs annual meeting and conference in Des Moines. The Webster County Fair is one of 105 Iowa County Fair members, as well as the Iowa State Fair, and also 145 associate members, including carnivals, entertainment agencies, festivals, and chambers who were eligible for this award. The Webster County Fair will be held from July 12 to the 16th. Very well deserved honor for them. Next, let's move on to another headline. This is about、uh, a former paraeducator that pleaded guilty to the lascivious conduct. This is out of Rockwell City, also written by Kelby Wingert. A former paraeducator in the Manson Northwest Webster School District admitted that he engaged in inappropriate sexual conduct with a 14-year-old student last fall, according to a plea agreement. In October, 21-year-old Zachary Marshall Sefkin of Manson was arrested by the Calhoun County Sheriff's Office. Sefkin was charged with one count of each of third-degree sexual abuse, and that's a Class C felony. Also, sexual exploitation by a school employee, and that's a Class D felony. And lascivious acts with a child—that's also classified as a Class C felony. The alleged crimes happened between September 3rd and September 10th of last year in 2022. Calhoun County Sheriff Pat Riley confirmed to the Messenger in November that the investigation into Sifkin's alleged conduct started after a Manson police officer was dispatched to a suspicious vehicle on October 4th. When the responding officer arrived, Sifkin and a 14-year-old student were found in the middle of a sex act. However, during the investigation, law enforcement found evidence that the specific crime Sifkin is charged with happened in early September. Sefkin filed a written guilty plea on February 3rd, pleading guilty to an amended count of lascivious conduct with a minor and an aggravated misdemeanor. And in that plea, Sefkin admitted to solicitating that minor victim to engage in a sex act between September 8th and October 4th of last year. I understand that consent is not an excuse, nor do I ask for it to be. He wrote in the plea. He also added that he was also in a quote in a position of authority over that victim. Under the plea agreement, Sefkin pleads guilty to the aggregated, aggravated misdemeanor, and the other two charges will be dismissed. At sentencing, the state and the defense will recommend a suspended two-year prison sentence, pending two years of probation with the Department of Correctional Services, a ten-year special sentence of parole, registration on the Iowa Sex Offender Registry, and also an $855 fine plus 15% crime services surcharge. And also a $90 sex abuse surcharge. Sefkin will also be required to pay the $300 probation enrollment fee to the DCS.
District Court Judge Derek Johnson accepted Sefkin's guilty plea on Monday. A sentencing hearing has been scheduled for April 17th at the Calhoun County Courthouse. Sefkin, who has worked for the MNW District for two years, had already resigned from the district before his arrest, and that's according to the MNW Superintendent Justin Daggett. He said that Sefkin notified the district on September 30th that he planned to resign and submitted his resignation on October 5th. Sefkin's last day with the district was September 30th. At the time of Sefkin's resignation, the school district was unaware of the allegations against Sefkin, according to the superintendent. He says that while it is our understanding that none of the alleged conduct that led to Mr. Sefkin's arrest occurred during school hours or on school district property, the alleged conduct at issue in this case is adherent and not tolerated, he said in a statement that sent out to the district's parents after that arrest. And the last headline that is on the front page is titled GOP to correct, quote, drafting error in the pipeline bill. Legislation have exempted two pipelines from new restrictions. This is written by Jared Strong of the Iowa Capitol Dispatch. A draft of new legislation that would limit imminent domain for carbon dioxide pipelines erroneously included a provision that would exempt at least two pipeline companies from the proposed restrictions, according to a spokesperson for the Iowa House Republicans on Monday. House Republicans distributed the draft last week. That bill would require the companies to get voluntary easements for at least 90% of their routes before they could use eminent domain to get easements for the rest. Eminent domain allows the government to take private property for public benefit with compensation to the landowner. The bill also would allow counties to dictate how far the residents and other buildings the pipelines could be constructed. The legislation, if passed, would further delay permits for the pipelines until new federal safety guidelines are finalized. But the draft bill also said that those provisions wouldn't apply to pipeline companies that have already submitted permit applications for their projects. That would exempt the current proposals of Navigator CO2 Ventures and Summit Carbon Solutions, which intend to build spalling pipelines across wide areas of the state to transport captured carbon dioxide from ethanol plants. Wolf Carbon Solutions has proposed a shorter pipeline in far eastern Iowa, but has not yet filed for a permit with the state. It's unclear why the exemption was included in the bill. Representative Stephen Holt, a Republican from Denison, said last week that the bill is meant to defend the property rights of landowners in the pipeline's paths. Holt said on Monday afternoon, sometimes we have to move quickly around here. And in my initial read, I did not catch that the language would not have applied to those who had already applied for permits. As soon as this was pointed out to me, I put in the corrective language. Melissa Deitch, Deitch? Sorry, her name is a little hard to pronounce, but she is the spokesperson for the House Republicans. She said the inclusion of the exemption was, quote, definitely a drafting error. Landowners who opposed the pipeline projects were initially dismayed by the exemption, but were assured that it would be removed from the bill. Holt had every intention. I know he did. I know he did because we've had discussions for over a year now with this, and that it would be covered in all three pipelines, said Sherry Webb, who owns the farmland in Holt's district in Shelby County that would be affected by the pipeline. House Speaker Pat Grassley, a Republican from New Hartford, who is among more than 20 co-sponsors of the bill, could not be reached for comment for this article, but he told one of his constituents that the exemption could be rectified.
Kim Jonker, who runs farmland near New Hartford, that is on the path of the navigator's proposed pipeline, said that he was a little bit taken aback. Junker spoke recently with Grassley about the exemption. She said he said that if there was something wrong in there, some wording error, that they would take care of that. The legislation drew a stiff rebuke on Friday, rebuke on Monday from the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association, which lobbies for ethanol-friendly policies, and said that the bill is an unfair affront to these pipelines. Monty Shaw, the association's executive director, said that this bill singles out for destruction of the single most important technology we have to keep liquid fuels, like ethanol, competitive with electric vehicles in the rapidly growing low-carbon transportation markets. The association recently released a study with dire predictions for the state's ethanol industry if the pipelines aren't built. The study said that Iowa ethanol producers would be put at a disadvantage to producers in other states that are able to capture and sequester carbon, enabling them to re-app federal tax credits and access to Iowa carbon fuel markets. The association said the new legislation would effectively ban carbon dioxide pipelines in Iowa and would punish pipeline companies that have spent hundreds of millions of dollars in pursuit of their projects. To change the rules midway through the process is unfair and quite possibly illegal, the association said in its analysis of the bill. Webb said that her family has owned Shelby County farmland for 123 years and worries about the damage to the land that would accompany the construction of a pipeline. She finally said there are a lot of farmers out there that have owned this land forever, and we spent a lot of, a lot of money on our land, so who's changing the rules? And that is a look at all the headlines in today's paper in The Messenger. Let's take a look at other news happening across Iowa. Iowa 2024 GOP caucus train begins to grow. Trump noticeably absent from the lineup. This is an Associated Press article that's written by Thomas Beaumont. Uh, the story is actually based in Des Moines because uh, Nikki Haley was here yesterday. Um, So Nikki Haley is swinging through Iowa this week, fresh off announcing her presidential campaign. Her fellow South Carolina Republican Senator Tim Scott will also be here as he decides his political future. And former Vice President Mike Pence was just in the state counting influential, evangelical Christian activists. After a slow start, Republican presidential candidates, prospects rather, are steaming into the leadoff presidential caucus state. Notably absent from that lineup, at least for now, is former President Donald Trump. Few of the White House hopefuls face the lofty expectations in Iowa that Trump does. He finished a competitive second to the devout social conservative Ted Cruz in 2016 and went on to carry the state twice by healthy margins as the Republican presidential nominee in both the 2016 and 2020 elections. Luke Martz, a veteran Iowa Republican strategist who helped lead Mitt Romney's 2012 Iowa caucus campaign, said that it is genuinely impossible for this guy to try and manage these expectations. They are enormous. They are self-made. I don't see how anyone who is saying I'm the guy can come in and even get a second-place finish. Yet, in the three months since he announced his bid for a comeback, Trump has not set foot in Iowa, the first place his claim of party dominance will be tested early next year.
To be sure, Trump is making moves in Iowa. On Monday, his team announced that it had named a state campaign director, Marshall Marole, who managed the 2022 campaign of Republican Attorney General candidate Brenna Byrd. Byrd defeated Democrat Tom Miller, who had been the longest-serving attorney general in the country, first elected in 1978. Trump has maintained an Iowa political presence with the national campaign team member, Alex Lockham, that's based in the state. But Trump also held a kickoff rally on January 28th in South Carolina, where his 2016 primary victory sealed his status as a GOP frontrunner. And he also squeezed in speaking spot earlier that day at the annual state GOP meeting in New Hampshire, where he also won the first in a nation primary seven years ago. Though the caucuses remain a yearly, nearly a year off, they remain the first event on the calendar, and some Iowa GOP activists have taken notice of Trump's absence. Gloria Mazza, chairwoman of the Polk County GOP, said that I found that quite interesting. She said that of Trump's New Hampshire and South Carolina stops. Because I was the first in a nation, doesn't everybody come here first? Meanwhile, others are also making inroads. Though Pence is not yet a candidate, his advocacy group Advancing American Values last week launched a campaign to organize opposition to school policies like one in an eastern Iowa district that has become a flashpoint among conservatives. Pence was in Cedar Rapids on Wednesday rallying opponents of a policy by the nearby Lynn Marr Community School District that's at issue in a federal lawsuit. The school board last year enacted a measure allowing transgender students to request a gender support plan to begin socially transitioning at school without the permission of their parents. That issue, an early focus of 2024 Republican presidential prospects, is particularly contentious among Christian conservatives, with whom Pence routinely says he identifies. And at Wednesday's event at a pizza restaurant, it had the feel of an early caucus campaign stop, Pence illustrated its traction. We don't co-parent with the government, Pence told the cheering audience of more than 100 people. We trust parents to protect their children, and no one will ever protect America's children better than their moms and dads. Haley had rallies planned in the Des Moines and Cedar Rapids area on Monday and today. Meanwhile, Scott is speaking at an event at Drake University on Wednesday, part of what aides call a national listening tour aimed at informing his plans before addressing the annual Polk County Republican fundraiser in suburban Des Moines that evening. Quietly making inroads is former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, who visited Iowa in January and also met last week with legislative Republicans in the Capitol in Des Moines and also Republican activists in western Iowa. And here's an interesting story out of Washington. In tests, zaps to spine helped two stroke survivors move arms. This is from the Associated Press. A stroke left Heather Rendulik with little use of her left hand and arm, putting certain everyday tasks like tying shoes or cutting foods out of reach. The Pittsburgh woman told the Associated Press, I live one-handed in a two-handed world, and you don't realize how many things you need two hands for until you only have one good one. So when Dueling volunteered for a first-of-its-kind experiment, researchers implanted a device that zaps her spinal cord in spots that control hand and arm motion. When they switched it on, she could gasp and manipulate objects, moving a soup can, opening a lock, and by the end of the four-week study, cutting her own steak. 
It's not a cure. The improvements ended after scientists removed the temporary implant, and the pilot study included only Renjulik and one other stroke survivor. But the preliminary results that's published on Monday marked a step for- toward one day restoring mobility for this extremely common type of paralysis. Dr. Jason Carmel, a Columbia University neurologist who wasn't involved with the new experiment but also studies ways to recover upper limb function, says that they're not just getting flickers of movement; they're getting something important, and it's very exciting proof of concept. Nearly 800,000 people in the U.S. alone suffer a stroke each year. Even after months of rehabilitation, well over half are left permanently impaired arm and hand function that can range from muscle weakness to paralysis. Experiments by multiple research groups have found that implanting electrodes—wait, elect—I can't really read this word, but I think it's something electronic. It says electrodes. To stimulate the lower spine shows promise for restoring leg and foot movement to people paralyzed after a spinal cord injury. Some have even taken steps, but upper limb paralysis has gotten little attention and is inherently more challenging. The brain must signal multiple nerves that control how the shoulder lifts, the wrist turns, and the hand flexes. Stroke damage makes it harder for those messages to get through. An assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh, Marco Carpozzo, who led the new research with colleagues at the university, said the people can still retain some of those connections; they're just not enough to enable movement. He also said that these messages are weaker than normal. So his idea is to stimulate a pathway of related nerve cells so they're better able to sense and pick up the brain's weak signal. He said that we're not bypassing their control; we're enhancing their capabilities to move their own arm. Researchers turn to implants the size of spaghetti strands that are already used to stimulate the spine for chronic pain treatment. The implants, the implants carry electrodes that are placed on the surface of the spinal cord to deliver pulses of electricity to the targeted nerve cells, which, for hand and arm control, are in the spine's neck region. Rendulic and a second, more severely impaired volunteer could move better as soon as that stimulator was switched on, and by the study's end, showed improved muscle strength, dexterity, and also range of motion. The researchers reported on Monday in the journal Nature Medicine. Surprisingly, both participants retained some improvement for about a month after the implants were removed. Radulic, who's now 33 years old, was performing some fine motor tasks for the first time since suffering a stroke in her 20s. That unusually young stroke, caused by weak blood vessels that bled inside her brain, initially paralyzed her entire left side. She learned to walk again after, but with the exception of those four weeks with spinal stimulation, cannot fully open her left hand or completely raise that arm. More national headlines now. Biden declares Kyiv stands in surprise visit to Ukraine. This is in Kyiv in Ukraine. President Joe Biden swept unannounced into Ukraine on Monday to meet with President Volodymyr Zelensky in a defeat display of Western solidarity with a country still fighting what he called "quote a brutal and unjust war" days before the first anniversary of Russia's invasion. One year later, Kyiv stands. Biden declared after meeting Zelensky at the Marinsky Palace, jabbing his finger for emphasis on his podium against a backdrop of three flags from each country. He continued to say, "And Ukraine stands. Democracy stands. The Americans stand with you, and the world stands with you."
Biden spent more than five hours in the Ukrainian capital, consulting with Zelensky on next steps, honoring the country's fallen soldiers, and seeing U.S. embassy staff in the besieged country. Altogether, he was on Ukrainian territory for about 23 hours, traveling by train from and back to Poland. The visit came at a crucial moment. Biden is trying to keep allies unified in their support for Ukraine as the war is expected to intensify with spring offenses. offensives. Zelensky is pressing allies to speed up the delivery of these promised weapon systems. All right, we're about at the 24-minute mark here. Uh, I don't see a lot of opinion pieces here. Uh, I believe there is a national one. But um, I think we're just going to move on and read a little more news articles. This is another article from the Associated Press written by Stephen Groves. The title is Congress Floats Ways to Secure Skies After the Chinese Balloon Incident. As the only current U.S. senator to have visited space, Mark Kelly knows something about unexplained objects in the skies. Back in his aviator days, Kelly saw the Mylar party balloons fly by his cockpit. And once when he was piloting a NASA aircraft, he spotted an object at roughly 45,000 feet, that's 13,700 meters, much higher than commercial airplanes fly that he couldn't identify by sight. He's not sure he would want to see American missiles flying at those objects either. Kelly told the Associated Press, referring to the heart-seeking, air-to-air, heat-seeking air-to-air missiles used in recent weeks to shoot down a series of aerial objects, including the suspected Chinese spy balloon. He said that I don't think we want to get into the business of launching AIM-9Xs at $400,000 a pop. The Biden administration's unprecedented peacetime downing of the Chinese balloon and three other objects has raised new and troubling questions about the security of American airspace, and that's alarming lawmakers who fear the episode has exposed a vulnerability that could be exploited by other foreign adversaries. While the House and the Senate both voted unanimously to condemn China's ruling political party for the incursion and largely supported the Biden administration's decision to shoot down that balloon, they have questions about what's next. Senator John Tester, a Montana Democrat who has been tasked with heading up an investigation into how the Chinese surveillance balloon was allowed to pass over crucial U.S. missile sites, said that he would ensure the Defense Department has funds for a protocol to assess the threat of unidentified flying objects. He said, we're going to get to the bottom of what happened and make sure we all have a plan going forward to detect and then find out what potential problems this balloon may cause and then a way to bring it down that doesn't cost us $400,000 missile. Tester, who chairs the Defense Subcommittee on Appropriations, told the Fox News Channel. Concerns over China, which has criticized the U.S. for a, quote, obvious overreaction and worries about interference with civilian aircraft, are shared by members of both political parties. And that's creating the potential in Congress to mount a robust bipartisan response. But lawmakers are also mindful of adding yet more military costs. The U.S. has already spent more than $800 billion yearly on defense programs and are wary of expensive shooting sprees for every random object that appears in America's skies. Kelly, who's an Arizona Democrat, is working on legislation that would require weather balloons to carry transboaters that would communicate with air traffic control systems to separate research balloons from mysterious objects where we don't know what it is, we don't know where it came from. 
he said that uh, it would really help the Defense Department to be able to sort out what is civilian science payload and what's a weather balloon and what's a NASA balloon, what's a private company in the United States doing, what even might be the U.S. military. Kelly said that who logged 54 days in space as an astronaut before jumping into politics. And we have just a little more time left before we move on to obituaries. Um, let's see if there's any important announcements. Seems like not from here. But the Iowa Lottery, the Powerball jackpot, is up to $87 million. And those winning numbers last night was 3, 17, 26, 38, 54. The Powerball is 15 and the Power Play is 3. Powerballs are always so exciting, right, if you win? All right, we are now 29 minutes past the hour. So let's uh, remember some of our friends uh, in the obituary section. We want to start off with remembering Leo Brine. He is a, he was 86-year-old of Fort Dodge and passed away on Sunday, February 19th at the Paula J. Barber Hospice Home. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. on Thursday, February 23rd at the Holy Trinity Church with a messenger Kevin McCoy officiating the massive Christian burial. The burial will follow on the Corpus Christian Cemetery with military sites conducted by the VFW Post 1856 and the U.S. Air Force Honor Guard. A visitation will be held one hour prior at the church on Thursday. Lauferware Funeral Home is serving that family. He survived by his wife of almost 60 years, Lois, of Fort Dodge, and also his sons, grandchildren, and also uh, a lot of loving family remembering him. He was preceded in death by his parents and also his sisters. Leo Francis Bryan was born January 3, 1937, in Fort Dodge. He was raised and educated in Fort Dodge, graduating from the Corpus Christi High School in 1955. After graduation, he enlisted in the United States Air Force, and he was also a member of the Strategic Air Command Bomber Crew for two and a half years. He was honorably discharged in 1958. And on May 25, 1963, he was united in marriage to Lois at a Corpus Christi church. The couple established their home in Fort Dodge, and Leo worked for Hormel's for 17 years and also Greenfield Transport for 19 years, where he retired as Director of Driver Services. He was a member of the Knights of the Columbus, Dodger Lions, avid Iowa Hawkeyes fan, and was a founding member of PICA or PICA. Leo loved to hunt. Peasants? Pheasants. Pheasants. I'm sorry. He loved to hunt pheasants with his family and friends. Memorials may be left to the family's discretion. We also want to remember Rob Freeberg of Pocahontas. He was 49 years old when he passed away on Saturday, February 18th at home in Pocahontas, Iowa. Funeral service is at 1030 in the morning on February 24th, 2023. And it will be at the Hope United Methodist Church in Pocahontas with Pastor Kay officiating. Burial will be at the Summit Hill Cemetery in Pocahontas with visitation from 4 to 6 in the evening on Thursday, February 23rd at the Hope United Methodist Church also in Pocahontas. Powers Funeral Home of Pocahontas is handling these arrangements. For online condolences and obituaries, you can visit www.powersfh.net. In lieu of flowers, Rob's family's request that memorials be made in his name. 
Also want to remember Daryl John Dahl of West Bend. Daryl John Dahl, 61 years old of West Bend, died on Saturday, February 11th. Memorial service is at 1 p.m. on Friday, February 24th at the Bowman Funeral Home in Webster City. Next, we'd like to remember Marie E. Hawkmeyer. She is from Gowrie. She, she was 100 years old when she passed away on Sunday, February 5th at the Aspire of Gowrie Care Center. Memorial services will be at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday, February 26th at the Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Farmhamville with Pastor Aaron Zimmerman officiating. The visitation will be at 3 o'clock on Sunday at the church until service time. Palmer Funeral Home Gowrie is serving that family. Memorials may be left to the discretion of the family. Survivors include her grandchildren and also great-grandchildren, 16 great-grandchildren, and six great-great-grandchildren and other relatives and friends. She was preceded in death with her parents and grandson. The daughter of uh, Marie, uh, she was the daughter to William and Emma Decklow, born on August 9, 1922 in Vincent, Iowa. Marie attended country school in Vincent. She was united in marriage with Clarence Hawker Mirren on April 9, 1944 at the St. John Lutheran's Church in Vincent. They farmed in the Gowrie area for many years and moved into Gowrie in 1978. After Clarence's death, she was united in marriage with Donald Ferguson in 1998. She was also a member of Holy Trinity Church in Farnhamville. Marie enjoyed farming and gardening. She also worked with chickens while employed at Farm Egg, Larson Labs, Hy-Vee, and Highline, or Hyvac, my bad, Hyvac and Highline. She baked pies for lizard livestock and also birthday cakes for the gallery skating rink. Putting on garage sales brought her joy, especially around the 4th of July. Next, we'd like to remember Kenneth H. Combs. Kenneth H. Combs, of 87 years old of Fort Dodge, passed away on Saturday, February 18th at Friendship Haven. Funeral services will be at 10.30 in the morning on Friday, February 24th, with messenger Kevin McCoy officiating the massive Christian burial burial. The burial will be at the Corpus Christi Cemetery with military rites conducted, conducted by the VFW Post 1856 and the U.S. Marine Honor Guard. There is a visitation from 4 in the afternoon until 7 at night on Thursday at the Lalfer Weyer Funeral Home. We'd also like to remember Lyle Cooper of Algona. Funeral is at 10 a.m. on Saturday on February 25th at the St. Cecilia Catholic Church in Algona. Visitation is from 5 to 7 in the evening on Friday, February 24th at the Lentz Funeral Home in Algona. And finally, we'd like to remember Rosalind Christensen of Gilmore City. Funerals are set for 11 a.m. on Saturday, February 25th at the First Lutheran Church in Gilmore City. The Lentz Funeral Home is in charge. And that concludes our uh, obituary for today. You are listening to the Fort Dodge Messenger, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Nicole Tam. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we're going to take a look at some uh, sports, lifestyle, and other news that's happening today before we wrap up the hour. All right, the front page sports story 
in bold letters is the title "Dodgers Chase State Medals" with the subheadline of Fort Dodge Boys in the Team Race. District Champ Reeks looks for individual glory. This is written by Chris Johnson of the Messenger News.、Uh, this story is out of Waterloo. All season long, the Fort Dodge Bowling Squad has found its mark. Now the Dodgers are hoping to do it at the biggest stage. The Fort Dodge Boys ended a one-year hiatus at the state meet after winning the championship in 2020 and qualifying in 2021. FDSH enters the state meet as a district champion, champion with individual district champion senior Zach Reisk competing on the individual side. His head coach Nick Vincent said that the team is solid. They get along really well and help each other out. Honestly, they can flat out bowl. Now they just need to go out there and make some noise. Before we head to more on the story, there's a large image of the bowling team with a sign that says 2023 Class 2A Bowling State Qualifier.、Um, the state qualifiers for the Fort Dodge Boys bowling team, left to right,、uh, in the image is Jeff Orez, Zach Reisk. Riley Travis, J.R. Stubbs, Nathan Beekman, Carson Werning, and Trenton Beck. Now let's take a look at that story a little deeper. Joining the Dodgers in the team field will be Newton, will be Newton, Lamar's, Dennison, Independence, Decora, Clinton, and North Scott. Reed will be flanked in the team competition by seniors Nathan Beekman, Carson Werning, Riley Travis, J.R. Stubbs, and sophomore Trenton Beck, as well as senior James Orres. The team state championships will be held on Tuesday at the Cadillac Lanes, with first bowl thrown at 9 a.m. Reek will take part in the individual tournament on Wednesday at Maple Lane, starting at nine in the morning. Fort Dodge will be represented on the girls' side as well, with senior Arissa Lumsden, Lumsden, and also junior Gabby Flores taking part. The girls' individual state tournament will be held on Wednesday at Maple Lane at nine a.m. The Dodger boys entered the meet after rolling twenty eight hundred sixty seven at districts. They had the highest Baker's game of the tournament with a two hundred fifty five. On the season, the Dodgers are averaging a team total of three thousand and thirty eight pins per match and a Baker's game of one hundred and ninety six. Beekman carries the highest series average for the Dodger. Travis and Stubbs are also averaging over four hundred. Beck, Werning, and Reisk are also the other Dodgers leaders. Beekman also carries the highest game average at two hundred and eleven per ten frames. Behind Beekman is Travis, Stubbs, Beck, Werning, and Reisk. Zach showed that he can do, and Jr. has been consistent. Vincent said, "Nathan has been solid. So has Riley." Carson was also part of the 2020 state championship team. Trenton has been getting better and better as just a sophomore. We just need to put our head down and compete and beat the guy across from you. Reek stormed into the state tournament as the lefty rolled three straight 200-plus games. Reek started with a 205, then finished with a 258 and 22 to take on the top honors with a 685 set. Vincent said that he just went out and was consistent. At one point, he struck 13 times in a row. He just stayed consistent and picked up spares and was locked in. Lumsden has been part of the Fort Dodge's last three state tournament teams when they were fifth in 2021 and seventh in 2020. Lumsden carries both the best series average for the Dodger in single game total. Vincent said that I couldn't be happier for a kid who has worked as hard as Arissa. She's been a part of really good teams. She has taken her spot as the leader of his team and done well. 
He also said that this could be a good spot for her to make the statement and also showcasing what she is capable of doing because she has put in the work. Flores was also part of the 2021-22 squad. Flores is right behind with 337 and 168. Vincent said that Gabby has uncanny ability to score when she needs it. At Districts, I told her that she has had to have a 230 or better, and she goes out and rows at 234. She has to stay focused and stay consistent, he said. All right, let's take a look at the hot corner here. On this day, nationally, on February 21st, in 1931, the first Major League night game, the Chicago White Sox played the New York Giants in a 10-inning exhibition in Houston. Later on in history, in 1976, New York's Red Holzman becomes the second NBA coach after Red Albrock to win 500 games with the 102-98 victory over New Orleans. And later on in history, in 2003 on this day, Michael Jordan in 2003 becomes the first 40-year-old in NBA history to score 40 or more points, getting 43 in the Washington Wizards' 89-86 win over the New Jersey Nets. And finally in this list, in 2016 on this day, Winter Olympics, Jesse Diggins and Kaiken Rendall became the first Americans in history to win a cross-country gold medal in a team sprint. Very exciting. Um, Some other sports news here in the paper. Dodger boys ousted at Dowling. This is out of West Des Moines. The four Dodge boys played one of the better quarters this season to open Class 4A postseason basketball here on Monday. The Dodgers weren't able to sustain their hot start, though, ultimately falling at West Des Moines Dowling by a final of 84-59. Head coach Willie Williams' squad was clicking on all the cylinders early as FDSH built an 18-11 lead by the end of the first quarter. The Maroons overall quickly responded, though, taking their first lead with five minutes left in the first half and closing the second period on a 24-6 run. Dowling had 31 points in the quarter, including 15 in the closing three minutes before intermission. Williams said that we came out playing with energy and pride, and we were working hard. We were working well together and making that extra pass. Again, it's a matter of sustaining the energy both physically and mentally. We have to get better at moving forward, stronger and tougher. Senior Havon Jondal scored 21 points in his final game as a Dodger. Jondal, a three-year regular at the varsity level, had 665 points to finish 17th in the school's career charts. I want to thank the seniors, Javon, Chiron, and Tawan, kept it and stayed loyal to the program, Williams said. I know this is hard to explain, but our players were a win in a lost season. They were committed to represent Dodger basketball the right way. Sophomores Cade Westhoff and Carter Woodruff added 10 each for Fort Dodge, with finishes at 1-20 overall, and sophomore Drake Warland contributed 8. Joey Coppola scored 14 points for the Maroons, who visited Cedar Falls on Friday in a sub-state semifinal. Davis Schreck and Jack Ode added 13 each. Williams said that this is a huge offseason for us. I hope this hurts for our young guys enough to make sure they don't want something like this again. All right, before we get to Dear Annie, we'll go over one more sports story that's on the front page of the sports page. Uh, This one is titled Homegrown. And it has a large image 
of Fort Dodge head coach Bobby Thompson, the gray shirt in the top photo. Yes, he is in a great shirt in this photo. And also assistant coach Mark Reel shouting instructions from the mat at the state tournament. The title is Former Dodgers Return to the Alma Mater, written by Chris Johnson at the Messenger News. Even after an athlete leaves the Fort Dodge wrestling room, it's hard to stay away. There seems to be a natural pull that brings alumni back to the room. Simply put, it's home. After coaching at Oklahoma, Ames, and Humboldt, Bobby Thompson returned. Thompson was a four-time state qualifier and three-time medalist, finishing second twice for the Dodgers under legendary head coach Don Miller. Thompson took over the program in 2005 and just completed his 19th season. And since 2015, he has helped lead the Dodgers to a dual and also traditional state championship in 2018. They were runner-ups twice and bronze three times. Thompson has coached 14 state championships and 58 medalists since 2015 alone. He has accumulated a career dual record of 282 to 141 overall. He is at 160-81 at Fort Dodge. When choosing or adding to his staff, Thompson leaves bringing in a variety of experienced coaches. We've had a wide range of ages and skill sets that that are combined compliment on each other, Thompson said. Ed did it for a long time and was probably an assistant for five. Sam is in his first year and after coaching for 33 seasons, I can't really train or get on the mat with these guys. That's where the younger guys come in. With a young coaching staff in the room, Thompson turns to former teammate and coach Birnbaum to join the staff. Thompson and Birnbaum were teammates on Fort Dodge's 1980 state championship team. He never really was that way, Thompson says. Or he has never really been away, Thompson said. We were talking one time about how we had a pretty young coaching staff, and it would be great for him to come back and be on the corner. After 18 years away from the program, Birnbaum agreed to return and help out this winter. He is a Hall of Famer and a two-time state place winner, and also was Fort Dodge's head coach from 1989 to 2005 before Thompson took over the reins. Fort Dodge has had a quality program and has for years, he said. There are some great athletes who are coaching. This staff puts their heart and soul into being successful. The last thing I want to do is corner a match and not do it correctly. It came back quickly, and I like to think the kids responded to it rather well. They accepted me with open arms, and I have a lot to be, and I have a lot of good quality conversations with them. Burbaum coached 103 individual state qualifiers, including 48 medalists. He led six state championships and five second-place performers. He had a dual mark of 165-79-2 as a coach and had three top-five teams finish at state, including a runner-up team effort in 1996. So why return after such a long hiatus? Well, Burbaum laughed and said that Bobby and I talked and he wanted me to come back. I'm not sure what he was thinking, he said while laughing. Bobby has some young coaches, so he wanted someone with experience. Bobby's also no spring chicken either, so he wanted a little assistance being another face in the program, an additional role model to the coaching staff. Also returning to the sidelines was two-time Fort Dodge State champ Sam Cook as a volunteer assistant. It's surreal, Cook said. Coaching with my coaches that I had in high school is incredible. I have admiration for their style. And getting to work in Fort Dodge and and those kids is a blessing. The 2016 Fort Dodge SH graduate was a three-time medalist, placing third as a sophomore and winning two state titles in 2015 and 16. 
Cook finished his career fifth on Fort Dodge's all-time time win win chart, all-time time win chart with a career mark of 162-19. to In his first season, Cook got the privilege of hanging the gold medal around the neck of freshman Jershon Ross, who earned his title at Cook's senior weight, 195 pounds. It's nice to have guys that can relate to the younger wrestlers, Thompson said. They know some of the pressure they're going through. After his career as a Dodger, Cook joined the Iowa football program as a preferred walk-on for a year and a half in 2016 and 2017. He joined the Iowa wrestling program in 2017 and 2018 season and was a four-year letter winner for the Hawkeyes to 2020. After some time away, Cook decided to return to his roots in the red and black. I took a couple of years away and couldn't get on the mat. This has been a lot of fun and a blast for me, Cook said. Having a big guy like Drew Sean Ross to be able to train with him, his potential is limitless. It's such a tight coaching crew, and I'm lucky to be a part of it. Two years ago, Mark Ryle, a two-time state champion and three-time state finalist, joined the Dodgers staff as one of Thompson's three paid assistants. Mark is a great wrestler of his own and brings coaching experience to the table, Thompson said. First, he was a high school student at Fort Dodge. Then he went on and gained some great experience. Ryle has enjoyed the time back with the Dodger program. He said it's been a good change of pace for me to be in my hometown. I didn't know how it was going to go at first, but I've had a lot of fun being in there with a lot of super high-level kids. Those guys know what they want to do, and I have some of the same mentality as the kids in the room. They are a team and are there to support each other. The four-time state qualifier became a household name in the mid-1990s, capturing a 3A title as a sophomore at 103 pounds in the 1994 and also again during his senior campaign at 125. He was a 119-pound runner-up in 1995. Ryle's career record 131.8 as a prep still stands among the top 10 in Dodger history for both overall victories and a win percentage. At Northern Iowa, Ryle was a three-time Panther letter winner and also reached the NCAA National Tournament as a senior captain in 2001. Ryle then joined the USA, USA Wrestling Program. He won a national championship in 2008. Ryle was also a five-time National Green Co. Greco-Roman All-American and a three-time University Nationals All-American. He was a U.S. Olympic Trials participant in 2004 and 2008. Ryle's coaching career began at the Iowa Central in 2010 after a stint as a UNI strength and conditioning coach for wrestling. He served as an assistant with the Tritons through the 2017. The next season, he became the head coach at Buena Vista University for three years. Now onto the sidelines, Ryle is working with his former coach in Burnbaum. It's been great coaching with him, he said. I just sit in the corner and don't say much and just listen to what he's saying. Thompson's other paid assistants are Tanner Utley and Tom McClinman. Utley, who was a state qualifier at St. Edmund, had been with Thompson for nine seasons. McClinman was at the state place finisher for Central DeWitt. Tanner brings a lot of passion for the sport and the kids, he said. He does a lot more things behind the scenes and helps the program tremendously. I lean on Tanner a lot, and Tom does a ter- terrific job also. We're lucky to have him here. Ben Schroener, a former Fort Dodge State qualifier, is the head Fort Dodge Middle School coach, as well as the Fort Dodge Middle School girls coach, and was volunteer at the high school level. There's also other volunteer assistants for Thompson. They are Tim Scott, Ben Schweer, Kevin Yeoman, 
and Brendan Dobel. All right, we are fifty-two minutes after the hour. Let's get to some fun section with Dear Annie. The title of this article is "Jealousy Causing Tension in the Family" in today's Dear Annie. Dear Annie, I need your advice. After our son's divorce decades ago, he was granted full custody of his infant daughter. They both moved home with my husband and me. They lived with us for 18 years, and we helped raise our granddaughter. And naturally, we are extremely close to her. Our married daughter and her husband resent the fact that we are so close to our granddaughter. Her husband has continued to say for years, within earshot of their son, that we love our granddaughter more than our grandson. His statements are absolutely untrue. Their jealousy is hurtful, and we have endured their complaints and lies for years. Not surprisingly, our grandson has come to believe them, and our granddaughter lives in another state, and they have no contact with her. Yet this lie is still being told to our son-in-law. Our daughter, our son-in-law, and our grandson have, since this past August, cut us off from all communication and are no longer speaking to us. I was very ill for three weeks, and even though our daughter knew it, I was ignored. Our daughter has said that her son never received the attention that the niece has received, and at this point, we're just sick of consistently being lied about for the past 18 years. Yes, we're hurt and do not want to renew our relationship, but we have had enough. We are in our late 70s and just plain sick of the lies and hurtful remarks. For whatever life we have left, we want for it to be peaceful. In our hearts, we know that what we did was the right thing and have no regrets. Our daughter has told me that I'm going to be very lonely when I'm old. I have two friends who are coping with similar situations where the jealousy is simply overwhelming with regard to a grandchild being cared for by them. Is this the reward that loving grandparents receive when they do what is absolutely correct with regard to helping make a loving home for a grandchild? And this was written to Annie from signed confused grandparents. So Annie says, "The dear grandparents, of course you did the right thing by helping your grandson and granddaughter. Is your son jealous that his sister is in a marriage and able to raise her children with both parents involved?" No, I don't hear that. It is understandable that the jealousy of your daughter and son-in-law is truly hurtful to you. At the same time, it must be very painful to them to cut you and your husband out altogether. They are likely unhappy in their own lives and are displacing their unhappiness onto you. Robert A. Heinlein, in his science fiction novel *Stranger in a Strange Land*, said it best: "Jealousy is a disease. Love is a healthy condition." The immature mind often mistakes one for the other, or assures for one greater than love. The or the immature mind often mistakes one for the other, or assumes that the greater the love, the greater the jealousy. In fact, they are almost incompatible. One emotion hardly leaves room for the other. I don't blame you at all for wanting a peaceful life in your golden years, but by cutting your daughter off completely will not ensure that. Just continue to show her and your grandson lots of love and open communication, and hope that they will come around. Remind your daughter that just because you spent more time with one grandchild does not mean that you don't love the grandchildren exactly the same. If you do reconcile, make sure that the quality of time that you spend with her grandchild or with her child is great. And that is the dear Annie, and we are fifty-six minutes after the hour, which brings us to the end of today's reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. I'm your reader Nicole Tam. Thank you for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. <laughs>